After two weeks focused on missions conference, we're back in 1 Samuel looking at the life of David on this Reformation Sunday. So let's turn to the Lord again in prayer, and then let's turn to his word in 1 Samuel 22. Father, in all the earth, you're the only unwavering source of shelter. And in this passage this morning, we have priests needing shelter. We have David needing shelter. We have David's family and the outlaws and outcasts of Israel needing shelter. Help us to turn to you as our shelter an eternal source of security and hope. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would strengthen us through your word, that you would cause our hope to be fixed and anchored on the gospel that we proclaim. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So where do you find shelter from the troubles of life? Where do you go for help when the pressure is up? That's the question for us this morning. Nicole and I went on a missions trip to Namibia, Africa during one summer in college. And during that summer, we were fully immersed in Namibian culture. We taught in Namibian schools, we lived with Namibian families, and we worshiped in Namibian churches. Now, we were there long enough that we outlived the joy and the adventure of living in another culture. And various members of our team experienced varying degrees of anxiety and frustration and homesickness. Now, incidentally, it was on this trip that I saw Nicole tough as nails and full of warmth and grace, and I knew at that moment I wanted to marry her. Now, the leaders of our trip had spent their lives in Africa. They were wise, discerning, and prayerful. And they knew that we needed time to talk through the difficult issues that we were having. And our hosts, because they were hospitable and because they wanted to be helpful, were always listening to our conversations. They were always nearby. And so there was no opportunity for us to talk through what we were all experiencing. And so... David and Darlene took us on long drives in the blue Volkswagen 10-passenger diesel van. And that van became a shelter for our team. Safely inside the van, team members who were struggling with life in a different culture could talk openly about how they were feeling and what they were struggling with. And godly encouragement and correction could be offered and we could sing, and we could laugh, and we could tell stories, and we could pray together. 1 Samuel 22 includes a gruesome retelling of a tragic low point for King Saul that Kendall read for us. But also in 1 Samuel 22, there is a stubborn reminder for God's people. There's an encouragement for us to stand firm amid trouble, looking to God as our shelter. In all of creation, as our eyes scan, where do we find shelter from the troubles of this life? In God alone is the answer of 1 Samuel 22. And 1 Samuel 22 is a warning. It's a warning against standing on our own, seeking refuge outside of God. God offered to shelter Saul 
And Saul purposely stepped outside of God's ways and God's leadership and God's authority, and he tried to make it on his own. And we see the results of finding our shelter in ourself. The main idea this morning is that we should shelter expectantly under the mighty hand of God. I'm pulling on 1 Peter 5 that we'll come to at the end of the sermon. Shelter expectantly under God's mighty hand. And I say expectantly because we're confident that God can protect us through the troubles of this life. And that's what that blue Volkswagen van did. It didn't take us away from the troubles that we were experiencing. It sheltered us through them. We sat in the van with the troubles around us, and we were able to experience shelter for those moments. The van became a source of rest, a source of security, and of worship in the middle of the trouble around us. So let's begin in verses 1 through 5 with the truth that we need an unwavering shelter. Now, think back three Sundays when Matt preached on 1 Samuel 21. We find David on the run from King Saul, and he arrives first at the city of Nob, and he goes to Ahimelech the priest, and the best reading of what David did was misleading Ahimelech for his own good, misleading him so that he couldn't give a straight answer to Saul. That's the most generous reading of what David did. And so Ahimelech gives him bread, gives him Goliath's sword, and sends David on his way. And David goes to, of all places, the Philistine city of Gath, where Goliath is from. And he expects to be unknown in Gath for some reason. And instead, the people of Gath recognize David and they call him the king of Israel, the great warrior, the great champion of Israel. So David misleads the king of Gath and he pretends to be a crazy person. And this whole episode in chapter 21 reveals David's temptation to compromise in the face of his fears. But I think we'll see at the end of chapter 22 that David also is learning from his mistakes in chapter 21. Look at verses 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there, that is Gath, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became the commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. David comes to this massive cave complex complex, and he sets up shop there. And to David come his family, his family who are also in danger from King Saul. They come to David there, along with all the outcasts and all the outlaws of Israel. They come to David. They find him at the cave of Adullam. Now think Robin Hood here, right? He's got 400 fighting men with him, plus women and children. But he also has his aging parents who aren't as adept for life on the road. And so in verse 3, we read this. David went from there, from the cave of Adullam, a long journey to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed there with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now Mizpah is a long journey from the cave of Adullam. So why does David take his parents there? Well, for one thing, it's outside of King Saul's territory. For another thing, who is David's great-grandmother? Ruth. Ruth is from the land of Moab. And so it's possible that David thinks he's got extended family there and that the Moabites would be open to preserving the lives of his parents. Now in verse 5, 
Then the prophet of Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So David leaves his parents in Moab. He comes to the eastern side of the land of Israel and he sets up in the, what would become his stronghold, just on the west side of the Dead Sea. And while he's there, a prophet from the land of Gad comes to David and says, don't stay in the stronghold, move into the middle of the land of Judah. And so he departs for the forest of Hereth. Now, God seems to be forcing the interaction between Saul and David that we're about to see, putting them back into context with each other. David needs unwavering shelter from the wrath of Saul. We've seen Saul try to kill him on numerous occasions. He's so angry with David that he even tries to kill his own son, Jonathan. His fear of Saul is understandable, but David needs to play through the fear. David needs to shelter under the mighty hand of God. It's as if God is saying to David, stop looking to foreign kings for your protection. Don't go to the king of the Philistines. Don't go to the king of the Moabites. Come into my land, to the promised land, and shelter under my mighty hand. We need an unwavering shelter from the troubles of this life. And so let's pause and think about what the troubles are. What's producing the pressure in your life this morning. The troubles that we face are orchestrated by our enemy. And we don't want to make the mistake of walking by sight. We sang about that in Luther's hymn. Ephesians 6:12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We cannot walk by sight alone and underestimate the power of Satan in this present world. But we also don't want to overestimate Satan's power either. Satan is desperate because Satan understands that his efforts are lost. He understands that he'll soon be thrown into the lake of fire, that Christ is risen, that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that Christ will return. So he's desperate, but we can't overestimate him either. Our troubles are not just orchestrated by our enemy, though. They're also orchestrated because they're normal in a fallen creation. Our sin is the cause of natural disasters that harass creation. And our sin is the cause of painful diseases that inflict our bodies. We must understand that we live in a world that has been decimated by our sin. And troubles are also produced by our own sin, not just the general effects of sin on creation, but our own volitional decisions. We rebel against God, we sin against others, and we wreak havoc on our relationships. Some sources of trouble in our life are produced by our own and by other people's sin. David is running because Saul is trying to murder him. The priests of Nob are in hot water because David went to them and misled them. We need to properly acknowledge how our own sin has contributed to the trouble that we face. So we have an enemy, we live in a fallen world, and we make sinful decisions, and all of these things produce trouble in our lives. And the troubles of this life are widespread and they're chronic, and we need an unwavering shelter, a shelter that, we can, that can withstand the hurricane winds of life in a fallen world.
Now, in verses 6 through 16, what we'll see here is our temptation to reject our shelter, to reject God as our shelter. On the one hand, we don't want to justify Saul's sin. On the other hand, we don't want to lack grace either. Saul is a sinner and Saul is a sufferer. Remember that God is disciplining Saul severely because God, because Saul rebelled against God's word, Saul rejected God's ways. And so God removes Samuel's prophetic voice from Saul's life. God rejects Saul as king over his people. And God removes his own spirit from Saul. Saul is experiencing God's discipline for Saul's sin. And even while we stand against Saul's sin, we can't help but empathize with his pain. But Saul won't turn. That's one of the themes of David's life is Saul digs in his heels and will not turn, though God is in pursuit of him. Saul doesn't humble himself. He doubles down and he rejects God's authority. He nurses his bitter anger over ways that God's leadership has disappointed him. And his bitterness gives birth to murder attempts. Saul is increasingly isolated from the people in his life, and he is increasingly vulnerable as he moves further and further outside of God's protection, further and further away from God's mighty hand, which should be the source of Saul's refuge. Look at verse 6. Now, Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. So he hears not only where David is, but that David is gathering this crowd around him. And Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, hear now people of Benjamin. Saul, Saul is a Benjamite. These are his own clansmen. He says to them, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait. Saul's using manipulation. He's using intimidation. He's full of self-pity. He's full of insecurity. And his unchecked anger consumes me. He says to his own servants, his own clansmen, what has the son of Jesse given to you? Has he given you vineyards? Has he given you pastors? Has he given you the commanders? Has he made you commanders of hundreds and of thousands? No. So why are you conspiring with the son of Jesse against me so that he lies in wait for me this day? Saul is consumed with his own plot. His anger is grounded in his pain. Think about where this all started. God rejects Saul and God lifts up David and Saul's heart at the bottom. It's wicked, but it's hurting God has rejected him, and now his servants seem to lack loyalty to him as well. Of course, Saul has no evidence to support this, but his emotions are running unbridled from the reality of the situation that everyone around him seems to be able to see. Self-pity is deadly. 
because it's insatiable. You can't satisfy self-pity. You feel sorry for yourself and you demand that everyone around you look at the situation the way that you look at it and feel sorry with you. You want them to grumble with you about God's leadership in your life. That's what self-pity does. You are devastated by what God has brought you and you are desperate for others to feel that with you. But it moves beyond lament. This isn't an honest expression of grief and sadness over what God has brought. It's sitting in the judgment seat and saying, God, you are wrong to have done this. Our medicine in moments when we long for the pity of others cannot be the pity of others. It must be the solace of God. And while the question hangs in the air, this question of, David's done nothing for you. Why are you siding with him over me? As this question is hanging in the air, a figure steps out of the shadows in Saul's presence. And this is a figure that's been around for a while. When David finds out what Doeg has done, David says, I knew it. I knew when I saw him in Nob, he would do this. So David knows Doeg from the time when David was also around Saul. Yet Doeg is not considered one of Saul's servants. Rather, he stands by Saul's servants. Look at verse 9. Then answered Doag the Edomite. He'll be called the Edomite three times to emphasize that he is not an Israelite. Doag the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. Oh, sorry. Then answered Doag the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, which isn't there in the text in 21, and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Doag is throwing in with Saul subtly. Saul consistently refers to David, not as David, but as the son of Jesse. It seems to be somewhat of a slight. And Doag uses the same phrase. And he says that Ahimelech inquired of the Lord, which may have happened but it's not mentioned in 21. And then he says that David was given provisions, which sounds worse than given bread. And he highlights that David was given the sword of Goliath. Doag is inciting purposefully Saul's broken heart. Doag takes the coals and he inflames Saul's anger by poking at them and stirring them. And he is inflicting Saul's heart. Be careful of people who tell you what you want to hear. Look at verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, and the priests who were at Nob. And all of them came to the king, and Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him? Why have you prayed for him? He's my enemy. So that he has risen up against me to lie in wait as at this day. This is what Saul thinks. David's gathered these people. He's come back into the land and he's lying in wait for me. And my servants have rejected me. They haven't told me about this. And my own priests are praying on David's behalf before God. Then Ahimelech answered the king, 
And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. Notice how respectful and clear Ahimelech is to the king. This is his unstable king who's still sitting there with a spear in his hand. And Ahimelech says to him, listen, David is your son-in-law. David is the captain of your bodyguard. Who is more honored in your house than David? This isn't the first day that I've inquired for David. So don't hold guilt against me. King Saul, don't hold guilt against my father's family. This is the first time I've heard of this. Look at verse 16. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Saul is trapped. He's trapped by his sin. And this is an opportunity for us to ask the same question. Are you trapped, am I trapped with a certain area of sin in my life? Trapped to a degree that it feels impossible to take this sin struggle and to push it out into the light where people can see it and help you with it. In fact, if you're honest, you've worked hard to keep this sin struggle in the shadows where no one can see it. But our sin never stays under our control. It swells and it grows and it threatens to break out of the darkness into the light. And so we're constantly in fear. We're afraid because we might be found out. We're afraid because what will happen when this thing comes into the light? What will the people around me think? How dire will the consequences be? The cost of this thing coming out into the light feels way too high. And so you're afraid, but you're also tired. When it comes right down to it, you're tired of living with this part of your life hidden. You're tired of taking this area of your life and saying, not this. All of this, but not this. You're tired of feeling like a hypocrite. Tired of feeling that suffocating feeling of keeping it under wraps. Or maybe it's worse. Maybe it's grown to the point where, like Saul, you've raised your fist to God. You're tired of his leadership. You're angry with him for how he's led in your life. And so you're just living in open rebellion against him. You hate his leadership in your life. He seems unfair. He seems uncaring. And then we look at where Saul's bitter rebellion takes him. We see how he's living vulnerable outside of God's protection, outside of God's authority, outside of God's leadership, under God's discipline, but unwilling to turn. We had a team that went to the Middle East a couple of weeks ago, and they worked alongside some long-term workers that we have in that particular country. And when they were at missions conference, I asked them, was it more intimidating to go to that country or less than you thought 
as you went in. And one of the women on that trip answered the question by saying, in those situations, you look at your missionary and you trust them. You look at the long-term worker in the field, and if they're calm, then you're calm. They understand the situation better than we do. You can turn to the Lord this morning. I know it feels impossible to kick that thing out into the light. You can trust Him with that risk because we have a God that longs to abundantly pardon. And He will walk with you through every step as He restores you. We have an opportunity this morning to stop hiding, to not run, to not reject God as our only source of unwavering shelter. And when you turn, when I turn, we find this. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. King Saul's future does not need to be our future. We can turn, we can kick it into the light and we can experience God's abundant pardon. That was Isaiah 55. Or Micah 7, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? There is no one like you, a God who does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You don't have to be afraid of bringing that thing into the light. Don't run from your shelter. Move toward Him. And what we find is an eternal shelter in verses 17 to 23. You see, Ahimelech's defense is a reasonable defense. Saul, this is the first time I've heard of it. He's your son-in-law. He's the captain of your bodyguard. Your whole household loves this guy. I've prayed for him constantly. But Saul ignores the reasonableness and promises to murder not just Ahimelech, but his entire household. Now, Ahimelech has had a choice to make. Ahimelech could compromise here. Ahimelech could make it clear, Saul, I'm with you. I'm on your side. But Ahimelech stands his ground. He doesn't compromise because he cares more about the eternal standard that he can't see than the king, the human authority that is rebelling against that divine standard. In verse 17, the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Saul turns to the guards around him and says, that's it, take them out. Kill the priests of the Lord. Standing around Saul are his faithful attendants, his loyal servants, his personal bodyguards. But when this order falls from King Saul's lips, nobody moves. 
The tension in that place must have been high. Saul must be looking desperately from person to person. Surely you will follow my order. But the room is frozen. In an act of rebellion, they stand against human authority and submit to a divine standard. And Saul is humiliated. He's humiliated in front of all these people, all of his people. They all forsake him. And so Saul turns to the shadowy figure from Edom, and he orders Doag to strike them down. In verse 18, then the king said to Doag, you turn and strike the priests. And Doag the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. That is 85 priests who interceded on behalf of God's people. In verse 19, And Nob, the city of the priests, Doag put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep, he put to the sword. Brothers and sisters, we cannot afford to let our sin go unchecked. It always grows. Now in verse 20, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Echatub, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. That was the sentence that was threatening me all week, all three of those names. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. David is struck with the reality that he's responsible for this. At the very least, he put a bullseye on the priest's back by going to Nob in the first place. By asking them for help, he endangered them, and he takes responsibility for what he's done. This is what a leader does. Takes responsibility for what they've done. He acknowledges his mistake, which at best is a mistake. At worst, he intentionally lied to them. He didn't tell the whole truth. In verse 23, he says, to Abathar, stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. Abathar would be loyal to David all the way to the end of David's life, all the way to 1 Kings chapter 2. He's there to the bitter end. Now, were the priests foolish for sheltering under God's mighty hand? Because they died. They're murdered with their families. Is God too weak to protect his people? Is he distracted? Does Satan run unchecked throughout creation? Or perhaps is God not good? Maybe he's not faithful. Maybe he's not trustworthy. Maybe he doesn't care about his people. Were they fools for entrusting themselves to the mighty hand of God if they were murdered by God's enemy? Ahimelech and every other priest would be killed by Doag, but they remain steadfast. They don't compromise in the face of Saul's wrath, but how? They are controlled not by temporary reprieve. They're controlled by their eternal shelter. They are embracing the eternal work that God is committed to. And so too, we must not hope for temporary reprieve. That cannot be the focus of our intentions. We must focus on our eternal shelter. Once you turn over to 
1 Peter 5. It's at the very right side of your Bible near the end. If you hit Revelation and move back a few books, you'll come to 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. If our expectation is that God will keep us from trouble, then we will shipwreck with disappointment. If our expectation is once we come to Christ, God will keep us from trouble, then we will shipwreck with disappointment. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. You see, if our expectation is that God will keep us through trouble, then we will stand firm looking toward our eternal reward. At the proper time, according to God's goodness and wisdom, God will exalt us if we humble ourselves under His mighty hand. And so we can cast all our anxieties upon Him. Because He cares for us, we can cast our trouble upon Him. We don't need to scramble for temporary reprieve. We can trust Him to hold us fast. We can trust Him to carry us through. Verse 8, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Saul's sinful anger is thrown into the blender with Satan's prowling desire to devour God's people. Ahimelech and Saul's servants they need to be sober-minded. They need to be watchful and attentive. And so do we. We must resist Satan, standing firm in our faith, walking according to all the reality that we cannot see, embracing the invisible kingdom that was initiated by Christ. And we do this knowing that when we suffer, we suffer alongside Christians all over the world, our brethren who are likewise suffering because of the troubles of life on foreign soil. We are aliens. We are sojourners, strangers in this life. But we hope not in temporary reprieve from that trouble, but in our eternal unwavering shelter. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, we look to You. We look to You and ask that You would be our unwavering shelter. That like that blue van in Namibia, You don't always take us from trouble, but You promise to lead us through it. And so we pray that you would be a source of rest and safety and comfort through any trouble that we may experience. God, we look to you as our unwavering shelter. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.